Higher Voltage is brought to you by eCity Interactive. For over 20 years, eCity Interactive has created websites and digital marketing strategies and solutions for colleges and universities that deliver results and exceed expectations. Their latest offerings to higher ed clients include enrollment funnel diagnostics and enrollment support services that efficiently attract and engage potential applicants with results you have to see for yourself. To learn more, visit eCityInteractive.com. Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. Welcome back to Higher Voltage. I am Kevin Tyler, joined today by Natasha Wariku. Natasha is the Stern Professor in the Humanities and Social Sciences Department of Sociology at Tufts University, a former Guggenheim Fellow and high school teacher. She's written four books, Race at the Top, Asian Americans and Whites in Pursuit of the American Dream in Suburban Schools, Is Affirmative Action Fair, The Myth of Equity in College Admissions, The Diversity Bargain, and Other Dilemmas of Race, Admissions, and Meritocracy at Elite Universities, and Balancing Acts, Youth Culture in the Global City, her first book. I'm so pleased to have Natasha join us today to talk about the conversation that the uh, higher ed industry is having right now around uh, affirmative action, the decisions that the Supreme Court is set to make in June of this year, following arguments made in October of last year, and everything in between. So Natasha, welcome to Higher Voltage. I'm so pleased to have you join us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into conversation, I would just like for you to uh, mention any other parts of your trajectory to this place you are now uh, that brings us to our conversation today. Are there other pieces you'd like to share with our audience about yourself or your background that I didn't mention in the in the opening? No, I think you summed it up. I mean, I came to these questions of admissions and fairness and meritocracy really out of us, you know, my broader interest in educational equity. And, you know, about 10 years ago, I really started thinking about inequality, not just in terms of disadvantage, but in terms of advantage, right? Because without advantage, there's no disadvantage. And how do people who are advantaged by systems of education make sense of that? And how do they kind of square kind of an, you know, an understanding that I think most people have that um, we have unequal opportunities to get into like the top colleges on the one hand, and on the other hand, a feeling of accomplishment when you do get into one of these colleges and how do they make sense of that? And, you know, I thought that that would kind of tell us a little bit about how elites kind of justify their position and, you know, promote policies that continue to perpetuate inequality. And so that's kind of how I came to these questions. Now, obviously these questions are now in the U.S. Supreme Court, unfortunately, but I'm really, I come at it from an interest in educational equity meritocracy and these, you know, ideas about what's fair and who deserves to be, you know, at the top. Excellent. The conversation around affirmative action um, is a gigantic one, one that has a lot of threads, uh, a lot of detail um, and a lot of history. And I'm wondering if for our listeners to just to set the stage, if we could just kind of describe what happened and what is at stake in the Supreme Court decision that's coming is coming in June. Sure. So, you know, I'll take it back and just for just the benefit of people who are less familiar with the history, affirmative action started in higher education in the 1960s. So this was, you know, around the time of the civil rights movement. It started in the early 60s at a few colleges admitting very small numbers of African-American students with the recognition that they historically had basically excluded African-Americans. Now, of course, some of these northern colleges always had 
one or two black students in the past, but they were really the exception that that proved the rule because of the way that students were admitted and what it took. And so, you know, they really wanted to be seen as at the kind of vanguard of racial justice and some of these colleges. And so they started having these programs. And over the 1960s, the programs grew both in terms of how many students they were admitting and also in terms of how many colleges were now practicing affirmative action. And so, you know, this is the sort of part of the civil rights movement and this push for educational equity. And pretty soon, you know, by the late 1970s, there is a major lawsuit that comes to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, you know, I don't want the irony of these lawsuits to be lost on anyone that these laws that are designed to protect African-Americans from racial discrimination in the face of, you know, slavery, the 14th Amendment, and, you know, residential segregation, legal exclusion, the Civil Rights Act, these laws are now used to say, hey, there's discrimination towards whites. And then, you know, I'll talk in a second about Asian Americans. And so there is this, you know, in 1978, the Baki case that made to the U.S. Supreme Court, Alan Baki basically said that he experienced racial discrimination in his application to medical school because he was applying to a place that had these quotas for underrepresented groups. And so in that decision, that was a split decision where some justices bought the, you know, racial equity argument, others did not. And Justice Powell was the kind of balancing vote. And he said, you know, you can have affirmative action, but you can't do it in a mechanistic way. That is, you can't have a quota. So the, the university um, program was ruled against, but he's, but it opened the door to affirmative action that is done in a holistic way. He said he pointed to Harvard admissions. You know, he said, well, Harvard, they don't just, you know, give you a certain number of points or reserve a number of seats, but they look at kind of, you, you look at you holistically. What grades did you have? Where did you go to school? What is your racial background? All of these things combined. So that sort of opened the door to this kind of justification of affirmative action. Fast forward, another case makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2003. Actually, two cases, the Grutter and the Graz cases at University of Michigan. The court, again, upholds the right for colleges to practice affirmative action in a holistic manner. Again, you can't do it through fixed number of points, but you can do it holistically. 2015, there's another case that goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, Fisher um, versus Texas where Abigail Fisher, a young white woman, was recruited by her father's friend, Edward Bloom, to say that she experienced racial discrimination in admissions to University of Texas. She, again, lost that case. And Edward Bloom, I think it's important to understand the role that he plays and the role of, you know, very well-financed conservative and libertarian organizations in pushing these lawsuits. So Edward Bloom kind of bankrolled that case, lost that case, and said, you know what? Um, I'm going to turn to Asian Americans. And they had this idea that, well, if I use a racial minority group, then I will be able to make a stronger case that there is racial discrimination because we're used to thinking about racial discrimination as towards racial minorities rather than towards whites. And, you know, I think he also barred from this model minority idea about Asian Americans, this idea that, well, if Asian Americans are doing well academically, then there must be no no longer any racial discrimination or any reason besides, you know, their own fault that African Americans, that Latinx, that Native Americans aren't getting into these colleges without affirmative action at the same numbers. Now, of course, that's incredibly problematic. And, you know, Asian American achievement is tied to streams of migration and U.S. immigration policy. I won't go into that. But the point is that um, so in this new case, which was heard in October and is going to be decided this spring, 
There are two, again, two cases, one at Harvard where the plaintiffs are Asian American groups saying that they experience racial discrimination in admissions and the remedy that they seek or that Bloom seeks on their behalf is the end of affirmative action. So it's kind of this weird twist of like, this group experiences discrimination, so this group should not have kind of a special consideration. And there's also a case at uh, UNC, and that is uh, a more traditional case with white plaintiffs. And of course, you know, the difference in this case is that the U.S. Supreme Court looks very different and is much more conservative than it was even in 2015 and has gotten progressively more conservative. So many are thinking about, well, what's next for college admissions in the wake of this decision, depending on what happens. So that leads right into my next question. I think that was a really great synopsis of what brought us to where we are today. What are some of the possible outcomes here? And what are some of the consequences associated with those outcomes, do you think? Yeah. So, you know, I think this is not going to be a, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down decision. I think that's important to keep in mind that it's not a yes or no, that the really the, the proof is kind of in the pudding, right? And so even in these previous decisions, for example, in the in the Fisher case in 2015, it uh, affirmed affirmative action on the one hand, but that the justices also said, you know, we're no longer going to just take on good faith that these colleges have tried other race neutral alternatives and haven't been able to find any. You have to be able to prove that to us in court. So that was a kind of a slight narrowing in that case as well. So there's all these nuances. I think there will be some kind of narrowing. You know, what might happen, perhaps the most likely scenario is that they will say, you can no longer have a checkbox, right? You know how like in forums, you often have a checkbox, check your race. So it can't be that, but you will still be able to, you know, talk about, your culture or your, you know, experiences of discrimination or how race has shaped who you are as a person. So it's not that it has to be a kind of quote unquote colorblind admissions process. Now, you know, there is a possibility that they will say the admissions officers cannot know your race. That to me is kind of problematic. And it almost feels like, how is that even possible, right? For many people, if the admissions officer is told what high school they go to, it's likely that they'll know what race they are or their name will signal a particular ethnicity or race or all of these kind of markers, family history, the personal essay. So I think that's an unlikely scenario. I don't think it's off the table given who this, who's on the Supreme Court. But Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson asked about this question in the hearings and, and even the plaintiffs' uh, lawyers were saying that they thought it would be fine to talk about your cultural background or experiences of discrimination. Um, in the application. So the consequences, I mean, I think it's going to have a major impact. I will say that we should also keep in mind that even these previous decisions already have an impact. So there was a study that came out a few years ago looking at how many colleges practice affirmative action. That number, particularly below the most elite colleges, they are already kind of pulling back from affirmative action. And I think that's because they're worried about lawsuits, right? These lawsuits are incredibly expensive, you know, not a lot of media that these colleges want. You know, if you're not one of the top colleges with huge endowments, you can't afford, you know, a lengthy and expensive lawsuit. So we already have seen a kind of pulling back. There's a kind of chilling effect that has already started. I think that will continue regardless, you know, any kind of kind of narrowing is going to continue that chilling effect. And, you know, being able to consider race and admissions we know from you know what happened in other states, the nine states already ban affirmative action in college admissions. 
they're, you know, either through state referenda or legislative action. Um, California has not considered race since 1998, almost 25 years. And the studies are not good, right? They find that there is um, a dramatic decline in the number of Black and Latinx students on those colleges. It starts to creep up a little bit after a few years when the colleges, sometimes they retool, they have a diversity essay, they do a lot more recruitment in more diverse neighborhoods. And so they they do try to compensate, but none of these colleges have been, states have been able to get back to their pre-ban levels of representation. Medical schools, there was a study of eight states with bans on who goes to medical school. We see a 5% decline in enrollment of Black and Latinx uh, medical students. And, you know, we know the research on medical care, which suggests that who your doctor is and race and matters a lot, literally to people's health. And we already have unequal access to health care in this country, you know, so that will literally affect people's health care. In California, a study of applicants before and after the ban shows that students who went to the UC system after the ban, Black and Latinx students, were going to lower status colleges um, than they would have with affirmative action. And because of that, they had lower graduation rates. So this idea that going to a higher status college makes it harder for you is actually wrong. You're more likely to graduate at those places because those places have higher graduation rates and more resources. So the lower graduation rates, and then even a study of wages of Latinx workers finds a 5% decline related to um, the end of affirmative action. So again, you know, for these states, there's a little bit of a spillover. So let's say you apply to college in California, you're from California, you might then apply in the next state over or even Massachusetts. And where we still practice affirmative action, you won't be able to do that if it ends in the entire country. So I don't want to minimize the impact that it's going to have. I think colleges will do their best to pivot because I think most admissions offices and most colleges really want that diversity and see a value both in terms of the educational experiences, equity, and justice for affirmative action. I appreciate you sharing that information. I think it's very helpful to understand the context of the outcomes and what those consequences are. I have to say that that day in October, I was completely glued to the arguments during that hearing. I was fascinated by the entire conversation for a lot of reasons, but particularly there were some really compelling pieces around legacy admits, some questions around like the definition of diversity, et cetera. I'm curious how you might characterize the quality of the arguments made in this hearing. What were the most important points raised and what were the judge's most notable reactions? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was fascinating to me too. And I will say, you know, I'm not trained as a lawyer. And so this is the first time I actually listened to the entire hearing of a case um, live as it was happening. So in some ways, I don't have anything to compare it to. So let me just start with that caveat. But I, I think what I found fascinating was just, you know, the kinds of questions. So, you know, for example, Clarence Thomas really kind of, in some ways, not giving, you know, the the benefit of the doubt to these universities saying, well, I don't even know what diversity is. And, you know, part of me was like, really? Yes, you do. You know, I mean, come on. And just, you know, these really, really back to basic, like fundamental questions that I thought as a country, we had sort of gone beyond. Um, We're coming up, you know, Alito as well, these questions of discrimination and you know, even this, you know, Roberts, who now looks more moderate than he is, this idea that this is discrimination. And the question of legacy is an interesting one and of class, because the reality is that, again, race is a suspect class in the eyes of the law, which it should be, right, because of our history. But it means that whites can sue 
and say that they are experiencing racial discrimination vis-a-vis African-Americans, and that is taken up in court. But colleges are allowed to, you know, discriminate on the basis of legacy. Uh, You know, did your parents go to this college? You know, which I think most Americans would say that's not really fair. Or your class, they're allowed to say, you know, we're not need blind. We can't afford to be need blind. So if you're a full fee paying student, you have an leg up over someone who needs financial aid. They're allowed to do that. They're allowed to do these things that clearly benefit people who are advantaged and who benefit whites, by the way, because the vast majority of legacy admits are white social class that affects whites more than every other racial group. You know, things like we want someone from every state in the country. Well, who lives in the middle of the country? It's mostly whites. So all of these things they're allowed to do. And again, these benefit whites, but they're questioning the legal because of a, a law designed to protect African-Americans in particular. And Ketanji Brown Jackson, again, I know I mentioned her earlier, but I, I really was taken by her just incisive comments. And it was amazing because this is one of her first cases and just so on point. And, you know, she kind of brought this up when she said to the plaintiff, you're telling me that if a young man who is, I don't remember what, you know, fifth generation from North Carolina says, you know, five generations of men, because women could not go to this college for a few generations ago, have gone to UNC. And I want to honor that legacy by going to UNC. That is permissible. But now a young African-American man, also who is from North Carolina, who said, my family has been in this state for six generations. My ancestors were not allowed to go to this university. um, And I want to honor their legacy by studying it at UNC that the former would be allowed, but that latter would not. And, you know, the, the the lawyer, he didn't say no. I mean, he basically agreed with that. And to me, it's just that was so incisive to show that legacy admissions in these contexts are racial, right? It is a form of racial discrimination. But, you know, this small policy that is designed to try to make up for all of these other things is under attack. You know, I think, and Elena Kagan as well, she said, you know, she had that phrase, what did she say when they were talking about, well, you can't have a box, but you can talk about your race and it's okay. You can talk about your culture. You've experienced race. And she was like, well, that's like you're thin. What did she say? You're slicing the bologna. You're really Mm -hmm. thin. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of a funny kind of comment. So, you know, all that talk of legacy admissions was like, I don't know why they were bringing it up because that was not on the table, right? And it's not like it's either or, right? And that's what right. I would say, like this this argument of, well, it should be about class, it should not be about race, and they should end legacy admissions. And that may all be true, but that's a separate issue, right? And I agree, we should have a lot more class-based considerations, and these colleges should not be as elite as they are in terms of the incomes of the families who are sending their students to the colleges but we also need racial diversity. So this false dichotomies, I think, was a theme that I feel like I heard a lot. I was truly moved by that piece from Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson because it was such a thoughtfully framed argument for why we operate the way that we do and why this suggestion or proposal could have impacts that are unintended or, or maybe intended, who knows? And I thought that was a really beautifully stated way to ask that question. Yeah, yeah. 
I can't help but think about all the other things happening around higher education, when it, especially when it comes to DEI, the things happening in Florida, Iowa, South Dakota, some of these other states, yeah. and the timing of the Supreme Court decision and the arguments, the points raised therein, and everything else. And what role would you say the politicization of higher ed and the Supreme Court plays or could play in this decision? Just in your own own opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is related. I think the attacks on higher education, I mean, Florida is like the most extreme case, but it is not certainly not the only place where this is happening. It's really scary. I mean, it's like back to the 1950s with, you know, whole disciplines, ways of thinking kind of being erased. You know, I, I think you just have to follow the money and where is the money coming from? For this case, for the um, Fisher versus Texas case, for these attacks in all of these different places on curriculum and African-American studies, I think you find there is a very well-organized and well-oiled conservative and libertarian movement that is funding these efforts. It's interesting because in some ways, I think this group feels like they already have affirmative action in the bag. And they are also now attacking admissions to some of these uh, elite public schools like, you know, Boston Latin in, in Boston and all over the country. And they're saying Thomas Jefferson in Virginia or places that have changed. They're saying, OK, you changed your admissions policy and it's race neutral. But that change was because you wanted to diversify and that is racial discrimination. So they're even attacking race neutral policies now. And again, this is like the Pacific Legal Foundation, like these, it's almost like they're like, okay, well now we have affirmative action. Now we're going to attack things even that are race, race neutral. So they are very well organized and it is very disturbing. You know, the, the, the small gains that we've made through, you know, since the 1960s are being pushed back. And now I'll point out just in case people don't know that Edward Blum, before he turned to affirmative action, he was behind the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act, again, was designed to protect the right to vote for African-Americans in the 1960s, basically said that any change to voter laws in a state had to go through, get preclearance from the federal government because of this history, right? And he bankrolled this Shelby versus Holder, this case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he won to say that, you know, we don't need that anymore, right? Because now it's states are not, there's no evidence of discrimination. You don't have to get preclearance anymore. Literally the next day, these states started changing some of these laws. And we've seen that in the last few years, right? Attempts to restrict access to early voting, to same-day voter registration, to literally ballot boxes. I mean, it's it's almost like the right is like, forget trying to convince you to join our side. Now we're just going to try to like not let you vote, right? I mean, I, it's it's a real threat to me. It's a threat to democracy, this this movement. We're seeing in states, Ohio just announced a bill that would take over uh, school curriculum there. Dallas, Texas uh, education just is uh, attempting or has taken over school management in this, the city of Dallas. There are these other attempts that are uh, feel very coordinated, as you mentioned, um, around education. And it feels like all levels of education, K-12 and after, are all on the table for some sort of revolution. And higher ed being at the back end of that educational experience is really going to pay the price there. So I, I, I work in higher ed marketing. And these are the kinds of conversations we get all quite often. It's like, you know, we, we want to recruit a more diverse class and in states where that might not be one of the most important priorities for that state, but also in an environment where not everybody wants that. And so it's going to be very, very important to be strategic in how we start talking about 
diversity on campus because it's something that these next coming up generations, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, are very, very attuned to and uh, appreciate and value. But the context that they do all that appreciation is not supportive of a diverse experience. And so... I'm not sure what higher ed marketing is going to look like after these decisions come down, but it's going to need to be very, very thoughtful. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, I also think that, you know, these decisions are kind of not in alignment with how young people are thinking about these issues, right? And so there is that. And, you know, I I feel like in my perspective, we're moving in the wrong direction. I would agree with you on that um, wholeheartedly. One last question. If in your estimation, Are there any certain types of institutions that are especially at risk in these scenarios or others that could end up coming out on top? Uh, I think about schools like HBCUs, HSI designation, Hispanic serving institutions, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great question. It's always important to remember that the vast majority of colleges don't practice affirmative action because the vast majority are open admissions. If there's no selection process, there's no affirmative action, right? And the vast majority of college students are going to open access colleges. So that's the first thing I'll say that, you know, in some ways, affirmative action and selective colleges get so much press because of who's in the media and who, and I'm guilty of that. I wrote a book about elite colleges and I've written another one about affirmative action, but it's important just to remember that, that, you know, most people, most colleges, this is like not an issue. And certainly that's true for HBCUs and Hispanic serving institutions as well. And so the only colleges that are affected particularly by affirmative action are obviously the ones that are engaging in affirmative action. And it's hard to know who stands to benefit. I don't think anybody stands to benefit. And maybe you are implying that maybe more kind of top students would select those colleges. I don't know. I mean, HBCUs in particular have had this really um, impressive reputation with doing amazing work and placing so many professionals, medical, you know, doctors, PhDs in programs with very limited resources. Um, right. There's this this wonderful book, and if you haven't seen it, called The State Must Provide by Adam Harris <sighs> that I highly recommend, which is all about, the again, the kind of racialized way that funding has worked for higher education and the way that the state has provided and provided for these historically white institutions and allowed them to shut African-Americans out and underfund HBCUs. You know, I think that's, changing a little bit, you know, um, Mackenzie Scott just gave all of this money to a bunch of historically black colleges, universities. I think there's a little bit more recognition. So I think we are in a moment that recognizes the value of those colleges. I think African-Americans have always recognized the value of those colleges, but people who are not in that community are seeing it in ways that they didn't in the past. Is that going to level the playing field? Right. I don't think so, because we're still going to get massive donors to Harvard and Yale. Right. So I don't know. I'm a little more pessimistic about like what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Your your mention of The State Must Provide, that is a book that I recommend to every single person who will listen. Uh, We actually interviewed Adam Harris on this show last year about it. It was a fascinating conversation. And I'll say it again here. If you have not read The State Must Provide, please pick up a copy, as well as all of Natasha Waraku's books. Um, I do actually have one more question that came to mind. Um, When the decision comes, are you looking for anything specific to be either in or not in that decision? You know, to me, it was kind of a shock that the the Supreme Court took this case because it was 
very clear to me prior to that, that there was no standing. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but just from what I understood didn't talking to lawyers, like there was nothing new in this case. And the US, the Supreme Court had in multiple cases affirmed um, this policy. And it was a puzzle, like why would they even take this case? And so, you know, if you're going by precedent, I think the right answer is that there's no reason to end affirmative action. So that's my hope. Right. <laughs> um, and that's what I think the right decision is. What they will do, what am I looking for in particular? I guess I'm wondering, is there any kind of window? What will the constraints be? Will they say anything about these other policies that do privilege other groups? I don't think they can, but it will be, you know, it's just hard to say, like, how do you end the consideration of race for underrepresented groups and allow all these other policies that continue to privilege already advantaged groups? I don't know if they will say anything about that. I and love, maybe, I uh, mean, maybe, you know, the kind of more left-leaning justices will have something to say about that, I don't know, in their statement, in their, the dissent. Their opinion? Oh, their yeah. opinion. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word. Yeah. No worries. No worries. And lastly, one question I like to ask every guest on our show is what you think the future of higher ed would look like five, 10, 20 years from now. I'm always curious to hear people's opinions on that. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I kind of see a little bit of a um, differentiation even more. I mean, I think U.S. higher education is so stratified, just like our society, you know, when I compare us to like Canada or Europe, you know, where there's a lot less difference between colleges than a lot less difference in terms of income inequality. And But I think, you know, what I see is that the elites, the selective colleges, the residential colleges, which again are a minority of colleges, I think they're not going anywhere and people see the value of them. I do think among some, you know, middle-class, lower middle-class people, there is a questioning of higher education that to me is kind of new. And I'm wondering where this is going to go because of the skyrocketing costs, you know, the job market, this sort of loan crisis, where there's a real questioning of like, is this worth it? And what are the alternatives? And I'm curious to see where that goes. And you know, I think we see it, if we've been talking about admission, just in terms of people going to community college compared to the applications to these elites, which are through the roof and declining enrollments in the lower status colleges. And so I think we already see some of that movement. Now that's a complicated, There's that's more than just people issuing uh, uh, higher education, but I think there's something has to give. You know, I think the way that we Fund higher education is fundamentally flawed, right? It's a regret. To me, it's regressive, right? The places serving the most elite students have the most resources. And the places serving the students who have had the fewest educational opportunities have the fewest resources. I mean, our community colleges are amazing. They're doing so much. Completely. Yeah. They have so little resources, but are really the engines of social mobility in this country. So, you know, what I would like to see, I don't know if this is what I'm going to see, but what I would like to see is a shoring up of state support for state higher education, for community colleges, federal support. You know, I don't know what's going to happen with loan forgiveness, but, yeah, you know, I think something has to give in terms of financing higher education. Totally agree. 
Natasha Waraku, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. This is going to be a topic that we will revisit uh, once the decision comes down. Uh, hopefully, you might be able to join us again for a continued conversation or a part two about uh, what your thoughts are on the decision. But this is a really great primer for folks uh, in our audience who are, had some questions about what happened and why and what to expect when the decision comes out. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2. 